Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We've got former Ole Miss for recruiting staffer Weldon Rodenberg on. As the start of camp is upon us, Ole Miss will start fall camp on Tuesday. Depending on when you're listening to this, that could be right now. Or uh, maybe you listened to it on Monday afternoon. But point being, camp is upon us. We got into a lot of the storylines concerning the team this season, you know, from quarterback to overall roster construction. And then, of course, ended it with the fastest-growing segment on American Soil Soccer Corner, where the real football season begins next Saturday as the EPL gets cranked back up again. And Weldon had a recap of his uh, venture to go watch Man City play in Houston last week. So uh, a lot of great stuff on the pod. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. But before we get to that, I want to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by MIMS Insurance. Glad to have my friend Matt MIMS on board. He's MIMS is an independent insurance agent based in Oxford. Everything's expensive right now. Gas is expensive. Groceries are expensive. If you've got something you need to get insured, you want to make sure you get the best rate. MIMS is the independent insurance agent whose sole job is to find you the best possible insurance rate. Whatever you need insured, whether it's a boat, car, house, uh, congrats on your boat if that's the case. Whatever you need insured, he can help you get the best rate. It can be overwhelming trying to find out what's the best way to go insurance-wise, whether it be provider, best rate. Just call Matt Mims and he'll handle all of that for you. That's overwhelming. You got enough going on as is. All you have to do is call him at 601-218-7854 and he's going to get you taken care of. Tell him I sent you and he will get you the best rate possible. All you have to do is sit by the phone and wait for him to get back to you. He is the uh, best in the business, absolutely. He shops it through 10 different insurance agencies and comes back with the best possible deal for you. So let him take the hassle out of the uh, shopping for insurance quotes and just let him handle the process for you. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's de definitely going to get you taken care of. Check him out there, MIMS Insurance. That is 601-218-7854. Podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Just a little preview from Skybox. They had one hell of a weekend in NASCAR over the weekend. Our guy Mark Harris absolutely crushed it. Plus 34.85 units on the weekend, a plus 2,500 outright winner, a plus 332 unit winner, and a five unit max winner. Year to date, they're 108 units up on NASCAR. Cup Series up 35 units, Xfinity 38 units, and Trucks 30-40 units. So basically, if you're not using Skybox, if you're a NASCAR fan and not using Skybox, you're just wasting free money. They're absolutely destroying it. They've got all kinds of different picks packages on the site. From now through August 16th, you get anyone who signs up for a four-week or full-season pass for NASCAR through the remainder of the season. So a four-week or a full-season full, full pass on NASCAR, you'll be entered into a chance to win a drawing for a four-week free NFL and NCAA package. So if you buy the NASCAR package by August 17th, you're going to be entered into a contest that will give you a chance to be drawn and win a four-week free in NCAA and NFL four-week-long package. That's pretty awesome. They're still running the 50% off any picks package with the promo code Natty. Skybox is there to help you get winners. Get signed up with them before football season, whether it's month-long, season-long. I recommend just riding with them the whole year, all sports. But they're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, and they're going to lead you to profit more consistently than your own brain, certainly. And 
definitely more so than anyone else in the industry. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Glad to have these guys on board. Get ready for football season with Skybox. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg on the storyline surrounding this Ole Miss team as they enter fall camp. We now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, Weldon Rodenberg. I guess we'll call this our pre-camp edition show, but we are uh, back in the swing of things. Uh, we had you on for a little tune-up a couple of weeks ago or late last week. All my days are running together um, to kind of talk about some SEC Media Day stuff. And now camp is upon us. By the time most of you are listening to this, Ole Miss will be one day out from camp. I believe they officially start on Tuesday. Um, kind of report and get some stuff done tomorrow, that being Monday. And then they start camp on Tuesday. Talked to Nick Broker about that a little bit earlier for a podcast that will be out later. Um, but we're uh, kind of easing back up into the uh, in ramping up for football season. I guess this is preseason for us too. But uh, I guess we'll just start there. I know we did this a little bit last time. What's camp like for staffers in the building? I imagine there's got to be a pretty good sense of excitement. You're finally back. You're through the mundane summer workouts. And you're kind of getting rolling again. What's it like? Yeah, I mean, it's the beginning of a pretty long uh two or three weeks, um, especially from a recruiting staff standpoint, from a coaching staff standpoint, you know, it all starts with a bunch of meetings and everyone's pretty excited because, you know, this leads up to the first game. Like there's no more breaks. There's no more nothing except for football and preparing. Um, and it's a lot of practice. And that's kind of the exciting part is really getting to see your team begin to take shape. You know, you have the summer, I mean, Saturday scrimmages to kind of, see where everyone's at uh, and figure out who's going to be playing where, uh, who's going to be playing how much, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but who's going to be, you know, the quarterback, <laughs> which is the most important thing. Uh, but it's, it's a long few weeks, and, you know, they, people get tired of hitting each other, ready to hit someone else. And uh, it's fun, though. Everyone gets really excited, and it's like a real practice. Spring is kind of – doesn't feel real. Fall feels real. And uh, these kids will definitely be able to feel that. Ole Miss has a bunch of newcomers on that, and we'll get into this piece of it in a little bit. But I'm just curious from, like, what you knew and what you experienced, how good of an idea do you think a staff has at this point, even with a team with a lot of new faces and some coming back, of what exactly you just outlined, who's going to play where and how much? Like, just in an average given year, like, how many real position battles they are? I know it depends year to year, but, like, how – first day of camp, how good of an idea does the staff handle of who their guys are going to be? It just depends on what kind of team you have. If, if you're a veteran-related team and those guys have been in the program for two or three years and have a kind of a solidified spot, then you really don't have that many battles. Um, I would say, especially for, like, offensive line and defensive line, where you you try not to rotate the O-line too much, but you got to find your, your sixth, your seventh, or eighth guy. And for the defensive line, I mean, guys can come out of anywhere and kind of take a spot, take a rotation spot. Um, that really kind of goes where everywhere in the team, you know, teams play so fast on offense that you're really, you have to have real depth. And I think fall is definitely the place where you figure out not only your starters, but the guys that are able to, you know, go in the game with confidence. Um, and that's incredibly important, especially for this team with new guys who are figuring out new positions. Just a 10,000 foot view. The last time we did a pod, I know we spent a lot on media days and I asked you about some procedural stuff with camp, but just as 10,000 foot view, looking up and down the depth chart, now that everything's complete, um, you know, you got Heath in this summer, a couple of those late ads. What is your opinion of this team? I'll, I'll give you a short snippet of mine. I think it's probably one of the best offensive lines they've maybe ever had. I think they're as good as they've been on the defensive line depth and actual real impact guys in quite a while. Um, my take on it is, like, obviously the quarterback thing is huge. Losing Matt is huge. But, like, 
if you had this team with Matt Corral, I think you'd be talking about a team that could potentially contend for the West. But because of the quarterback in a couple smaller areas, I'm not there yet. Well, how are you, what, what do you kind of feel about this team? Yeah, it's kind of a weird team. I think it's the most depth that Ole Miss has had in terms of just all around looking like an SEC team since maybe 2015, just from every position having players. And there's still holes, of course. Uh, I think what this team lacks is a lot of – they have a lot of very good players on this team. I don't know if they have a whole lot of great players. I mean, there's guys that I like. You know, I think the running back room, Bentley and Evans, I have the potential to be incredibly good football players. But it's still just potential at this point. I mean, Bentley's had injuries. Evans is Evans. You really don't know what you're going to get, even though, I mean, he's incredibly talented. Um, the, both quarterbacks, I think, have a chance to be really good football players. But I don't know if either one is a great football player at this point in their careers. I, I, they most certainly can get there. Then on defense, you've got guys like, you know, Tywin Malone and Cedric Johnson, Ivy, the Troy Jones new linebacker battle. Like a lot of guys who have the chance to be great players, but I think figuring out in fall or I guess what the coaching staff is going to figure out in the fall is like which one of these guys is going to step up to take that next level for this team to get them to a different point than they're already at. It's a good point. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely it does. And you talk about like the expectation side of it too. I think last year you probably could have said, you know, some similar things about, you know, this team definitely last year was not as deep, but they had some really good players in what they, one of the reasons they went 10 and two is Matt Corral became a great player. Um, Sam Williams became, I think a borderline great player. They had a lot of dudes. You had a whole kind of back in the secondary. I won't call Jake Springer great, but he was really, really good and really, really important. And so they had, he was, he was great at what he did for the team for sure. He was just, Absolutely, in that sense. And so he, it, you're kind of looking for the same thing this year. And the thing on top of that, I think the other piece of it too, and this almost feels like yesterday's news now, we talked about it a lot in like December and a little bit in the spring, all new coaches basically. I mean, it's essentially an yeah. entirely new coaching staff except for what, like Kiffin, Thornton, and Randall Joyner. So like you have, yeah. you know, it's, it's a different role for Chris Partridge. You have a new offensive coordinator and Charlie Weiss Jr. Like there's going to be some acclimation to just like the staff. And a lot of it is guys like the, the two coordinators have never been full time, like, you know, head coordinators at the power five um, level. I don't think, right. I mean, Weiss comes from what USF um, at, after being at FAU, you know, I know you had Partridge at Michigan and he was a co-coordinator last year, but I imagine it's going to look more like his defense where Durkin was in control last year. So you've got right. the coaching staff side of it. He had to replace a lot on the coaching staff side and Kiffin's batting average is so high with coaches in a short amount of time. You just assume it's like plug and play and everyone will be fine or an upgrade. And that's not really realistic in some ways. I'm not saying that all those guys or any of them are going to suck, but it's no guarantee that they are going to be home run hires like the last few have been as well. And that's an important aspect. Right. I think he, if anything he's done since he's gotten to Ole Miss, that he deserves the benefit of the doubt for, it's his ability to hire coaches, whether it's coordinators or assistant coaches. He's just, I don't know, his thing is always young and ambitious. And I think in this day of college football, having guys coming in to your staff that are like hungry and want to do it and just simply put forth effort is, is something that like people just assume that a lot of coaches do. But a lot of guys that have been around 
for a long time, you know, they kind of take things for granted where he's been able to find guys that not only are incredibly talented coaches, but are also talented recruiters who try. And that's, that's such a huge part of it. And I, I think that, you know, like you said, until we see something different, you, you, you can assume that these guys are going to do what they need to do to, to help this team in the fall. This might be a weird question, but why is he so good at getting coaches, good coaches to come work for him? Because, you know, externally, what we see as the public, personality-wise, he's a little bit weird. Um, yeah. Not, a little different. Actually. It's weird. I don't know if weird, weird might be too harsh word. He's a little different. We'll put it that way. Um, and, you know, in the whole, like, we talked about the with recruits, like the living room aspect of sitting in an 18-year-old's living room kind of kissing their ass. He's not great at that aspect of it. But clearly the proof is in the pudding. Why do you think guys like working for him? It's an interesting question. <laughs> um, I, I, my best guess, because he is not the easiest person to work for, but it's a different type of not easy compared to Saban, where it's, you know, incredibly stressful and organized and strenuous, you know, Kiffin, it's very much the opposite. But what he does that I think kind of separates him and all these young guys would like to come work for him is that he lets you do your job more than most coaches would. He is not a hands-on guy, even on the offensive side of the ball. Like, you know, he's in the offensive staff meetings and he's he's overlooking and overseeing. But if you know your stuff, like he is not going to sit there and tell you you're wrong. You, they collaborate, you know, they work together. But especially on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, he's hiring guys who he trusts, and he trusts himself to figure out who those guys are. So if you're a young up-and-coming coach that has the ability to have full control over your room with not a lot of, you know, whether it's your coordinator or Kiffin kind of hovering over your head telling you what to do, I mean, that's incredibly appealing. And, of course, the second part of that is he's at an SEC school. Uh, he can go find guys and pay them a lot of money. I mean, that's the obvious answer is you know, some of these guys are coming from different places where they can make a lot more money, but that's not everybody. I mean, John David Baker came from USC. Now it's a weird deal because Helton was fired or going to be fired, but still he could have stayed and he knows Lincoln Riley he could have stayed there. You never know. But uh, his track record, especially here has been pretty impressive. It really has. It's it's really been kind of unbelievable. Um, whether it's the portal or the coaching staff, like it's it's pretty incredible. And you mentioned not being the easiest guy to work for. I think the proof of that is in the fact that you know he's had he has had a lot of guys leave. Um, yes. So I think it was pretty clear by the end that the the Lebby Kiffin thing was a little bit of an arranged marriage, but that's only natural. That happens sometimes, right? It, like, yeah, it's very much dependent on your personality as a coach. There are some guys who who just who that structure and that you know minute to minute hour to hour day to day organization is just how they function, and if you don't if that's how you function, you may not be a great fit with Lane. That doesn't mean you can't work with them by any means because people do it all the time and that people go into different staffs for different opportunities and you have to adjust and adapt and develop your skill set because not everybody's the same. But for the people who aren't like that, it, it can be difficult. And if you are like that, then it's a perfect fit. Yeah, you know, you're right. And I think you nailed it earlier. I think what it boils down to as well is you talk about the aspect of him letting guys, if he trusts you, he's going to let you do your job, right? He's not going to be in the room kind of being overbearing and, and micromanaging you. And I think 
I could be wrong about this, but do you think that's end of the day? That's probably one of the bigger selling points because like, I think of like a guy like Ed Orgeron, that was his demise. He kept sticking his tentacles in different places where they didn't need to be to the point of, I forget the guy they had before Brady. I think it was Matt Canada where like the famous story where he's like, Matt Canada. Yeah. He's like yelling at a practice. This is not my offense. And like, that's not really, that's not great. That's not what you want to see or hear. And so like, I, you know, you, I feel like you can put up with the, it's like any job. I feel like you can put up with a lot of different stuff. If at the end, the day the guy trusts you or the girl whoever trusts you to do your job I feel like that's probably a sense of fulfillment that at the end of the day can probably overcome a lot of other stuff um whether it's being erratic or just being demanding to work for in general right I mean if you're a if you're a head coach especially in the SEC and Lane you know he was not calling the plays last year and you know, I do not know if he's going to call him or not call him this year but assuming he's not calling him and he'll, he'll trust Charlie to do it when you're a head coach, you're really not coaching that much. Right. You, you're, you're facilitating knowledge. You're coaching the coaches more than the players um, a, a lot of the time. So if you're in everyone's business, in every single aspect of your, your staff, uh, you're, not, you're just not helping anybody. You're just getting, not getting in the way, but, you know, it's kind of a – you got to be a CEO. That's, that's the most cliche thing in the world to say, and that's tr- true, though. You kind of have to – have everything organized from a kind of 10,000 foot view instead of being micromanaging everything that's going on in your practice and your facility and your game plan. You just have to trust the coaches basically. And he's seen and shown that he could do that. We'll get to the quarterback piece in a second, but is there anything that sticks out regarding whether, I mean, it can be as clear as a position battle or just a group in general. Is there anything on either side of the ball that you're kind of fascinated by or keeping your eye on? Um, I'll go, I guess I'll go first. I, I, I think the running back thing is fascinating because I think with the line this, that Ole Miss has and these two running backs, I think we, I brought up this example before you were on this really early. Everyone you talk to says Zach Evans is like the greatest running back they've ever seen or one of the greatest they've ever seen. They don't say he's a really good player. He's a really talented kid. Everyone has like top of the top level praise for him. You know, everything else, Correct. what you're getting from him on a daily basis, I get it. But I think they could have a really talented and a really deep running back room again. And with the uncertainty of quarterback coupled with how good they could be on the offensive line, I think you could see this become a team that's really defined by running the football a lot because Kiffin likes to do that when he's able. And I'm just fascinated to see how that running back room shakes, shapes up how good Evans and Bentley are because I think the best version of this team could end up being a team that really just pummels you into submission running the football, which you haven't seen that done successfully at Ole Miss and quite some time quite some time I think from a excitement and positive standpoint the running back room is the one you look at immediately because you've got those two guys who are complementary who are similar but you know kind of different in the way that they go about the game Bentley's a little bit quicker more quick twitch more on the edges and Evans is like a really physical fast I mean when he's healthy and puts it all together is easily a top five running back in the country like that's how good this kid can be um, assuming that everything goes to plan and everything works out. Uh, my position battle, I would say, would be receiver is the one I'm looking at because of the, I guess, not lack of excitement, but the concern about that position. Uh, Mingo says he's healthy from media days, and, I, I mean, there's no reason for him to lie about it. Uh, so if he is, that's really encouraging. Whatever's been going on with that foot, whether it's a re-injury or a a circle issue or whatever it was, that was incredibly concerning to see him back in a boot 
uh, towards the end of spring because, you know, if he's healthy, he's a really, really good football player. They brought in the kid from UCF. He's kind of a slot combo slot guy with real speed and uh, a pretty solid familiarity with Kiffin and why he's having played against him before. Uh, I think he's got a chance to be really good. And then it's kind of who's going to fill the rest of the holes, you know, Jalen Knox has been like this mystery myth, the ghost that's been on campus for, for two years. Everyone says is great, but is, is injured, was injured again in spring. Like, what's he look like? You know, how does he add into this? Um, Dennis Jackson, I think he kind of is what he is at this point. So he's a depth guy. Are there any of these younger guys like J.J. Henry or Braylon Brown or Falk Halter going to step up and make a move? Um, They've got guys there. I, I just it'll be interesting to see who ends up stepping up and being a big time player. And of course, there's always Trig. Who, what, what is his role like? Is he going to be? I mean, obviously he's an incredibly talented tight end. But are they going to be putting him in the slot a lot and having another tight end as kind of like their their nub blocking tight end? You know, because he'll count as a receiver for a lot of times because how talented he is. But he's not going to make up for the lack of, I guess, not guaranteed, but expected uh what's the word i'm looking for god bad podcast <laughs> expected production from some, yeah. some of the receivers he's not going to add towards that necessarily yeah and the the what was exposed last year i think mingo being back healthy is huge I, i'd honestly uh, until you brought it up i forgot about the boot part of it and him being re-injured in spring that is huge if he's if if he's actually healthy which i guess is an edge I think that's going to help them a lot. I think he was really putting the pieces together towards the end of that 2020 season and last year before he got hurt in the uh, Alabama game. You know, we talk about guys like um, Braylon Sanders, who was just hurt a lot and just couldn't seem to get back on the field. I think, you know, when you talk about what's inside, and I guess as the kids are saying these days, got that dog in him, seeing Mingo try to come back (laughs) – you know, clearly compromise and, and kind of really just get through those last three games. I think if I remember correctly, he came back a little bit against AM and then played sparingly against Vanderbilt and State. Clearly right. not healthy, clearly very no. compromised, but at least gave it a go and came back. And so, you know, I think there that's a guy that could probably kind of put all the pieces together this year, hopefully with a clean bill of health. But what you saw last year was when Mingo went down, it got real bare real, real quick. Um, at real fast. Yeah, Drummond was good at what he did. Outside of that, it was a whole lot of the Auburn game sticks out where you had Drummond go down. I don't shocker. I don't think Braywin Sanders played in that game unless I'm mistaken. And then it was like, this is real bad. And so the depth got really exposed last year. You bring in new pieces, right? You said Jalen Knox is that kid that's like everyone seems to forget about him. It's like, oh yeah, it's that transfer that actually had to sit out because no one seems to really do that anymore. When you transfer, you don't have to sit. Um, You you bring in a Malik (laughs) Heath. You bring in a Jordan Watkins. Oh, I forgot about I forgot about Heath and Watkins. Yeah, those guys too. But those guys were they were known commodities at their previous school, but not necessarily so much that they were just they had to stay there because they were going. I mean, Watkins was the second receiver to transfer from Louisville. The other cat went to Alabama. So right. I mean, these guys have a chance to be really good players and really good depth guys. But they're no, they're far from guaranteed, you know, playing every single snap, every every single down, because they didn't really even do that at their other school. Yeah, you're right about that. But like, at least like, you know, at least you kind of have more guys that you can think are at least high, high, high major power five college receivers. Whereas like, you know, last year after the Mingo and Drummond piece, I I think that resulted in us basically selling like basically all of our Dennis and Jaden Jackson stock. It was kind of like, uh, like these guys just aren't really cutting it. And maybe they hold out hope and one of them develops 
Um, and maybe I would put my money on Dennis if there was one. But after that, it was just like, I'm not sure how many actually SEC receivers they have. And so you bring some new guys in and, you know, if you can get two of those guys to be marginally productive SEC receivers and a healthy Mingo, that'll honestly be kind of an upgrade from last year. And then to your, Absolutely. what you said at the end, the trig factor is fascinating because like, you know, if he's awesome, that completely changes your ceiling in terms of what you can expect out of that, you know, we'll call it a pass catching group, whatever he is at wide receiver, whatever he's sure. doing at the slot. That's a fascinating part. I, I think receiver is a good one to pick. I think it's, it could be fascinating. I think they could be good. Um, but if they aren't, that could be something that really handicaps them because as good as they may be running the football, you're not going to have Superman back there to make up for a lot of the blemishes. Both those quarterbacks could be really good, but they're not going to make up for what Matt Corral made up last year. So no. receiver's definitely something um, to keep an eye on. It Do also proves <laughs> I hate this to... transfer portal. I can't even remember who's on the team anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like who's gone, who's still on there. I was like, well, I like completely I forgot, forgot about, about those two guys. I don't even think Jaden Jackson's on the team anymore. Like it's hard to manage and figure out who's, who's still there. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. I mean, I had forgotten, honest to God, I'd forgotten uh, about the Malik Heath piece of it and him coming in this summer until I'd got texted his phone number to do an NIL like story for that site for him. I was like, oh, right, oh, this yeah. guy's here now. Um, so, yeah, they got some pieces. It's, it's going to be fascinating. And uh, they certainly need to be better than they were last year because at a certain point, it almost just got unacceptable. I mean, what Corral was having to do, you know, with what he was working with was just almost an impossible ask. I think that's why you saw him carry the ball 27 times against Tennessee. Like it just, it wasn't a great situation. It's not what you want. And so that'll be a big one. I think on the line, it's, 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 it's depth and it's a lot of older guys and it's a lot of dudes that have played a lot of football together. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have a ton of inside Intel on this, but I know that Mason Brooks from the little I've talked to him, I talked to him for an NIL story and one other thing. He's an incredibly, uh, I'll say, vibrant personality. And I think he's fit in well from the sounds of it with uh, kind of the guys. And so that being the one newcomer and that's your left tackle with some NFL hopes, you're really in a good spot there. I think the only real change is you got Broker moving to guard, which I don't think, I mean, that's, I don't want to say it's easier per se, but in some ways it is kind of easier to play guard than tackle. And then it's probably Caleb Bourne going to center. And outside of that, you kind of got your guys. Um, You might see Eli Acker in the mix at one of the guard spots, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Makes um, sense. Yeah, probably. Ton of buzz on Jeremy James too. So I, I think they they could be a really good line. The defensive side of it, I guess my my pick for it would be linebacker. Like they were good because Chance Campbell and a call, and Mark Robinson really worked out last year, and I think they have some pieces right. there, but they're going to need to replace it again. And that's really the, when you get to the defensive side. That's the side of the football with a ton of newcomers, and I'm fascinated to see kind of. I mean, I know he's not a linebacker, but, like, what is Jared Ivey? How good of a player is in some of those guys? And, you know, linebacker in particular, I guess it'll be some – some Troy Brown will probably play there. You saw some Ashanti Sistrunk. Austin Keys was playing some good football before he got hurt last year. So, there's right. some options, but it's a little bit similar to receiver where there's not a ton of game experience there. No, definitely not. Uh, Sistrunk has always come in and played really – well and really solid as a backup and then keys was a guy getting in the rotation big time before he got hurt i can't even remember what game that was to be honest maybe it was alabama um and then troy brown obviously really never seen him play a whole lot he's in central michigan um from all accounts he sounds like he's going to be a really good football player and they're happy to have him uh and there's some other guys like you know jari coleman is he going to be playing off the ball or is he going to be playing a buck kind of outside linebacker You've got a few of those guys who are those outside linebacker positions like Clowney 
and uh, Coleman and Ivy and Cedric Johnson. I really like that position. You know, Brandon Mack, I believe, is still on the team and healthier. Do we know? I, I can't. I cannot remember what his situation is. He's still. Around I think he's still healthy. on it. I mean, that's a guy that had a lot of buzz like 2019. Like he's really coming along, and then it was like, Kai, what happened here? Like, yeah, where is he had a, yeah. production? Def, that's definitely true. Um, so I think the outside linebacker position looks good. The inside backers, I think, is a a reasonable cause for concern about the depth of that position. But it also depends on what kind of defense they're playing. Are they are they more three four than they are with like that three two five look? Is there going to be more backers on the field? Are they going to structure the defense to where they don't have to worry about that as much and have guys like Otis Reese and uh, Ashim Young closer to the line of scrimmage kind of playing that star outside linebacker, inside linebacker combo? So it'll be interesting to see what the defense looks like in general with Partridge. Is he going to kind of keep some of the stuff that Durkin used last year that was successful? Is he going to put his own spin on that? Are they going to be a little bit more traditional? Because I feel like they do have the depth that the other – at the line and the DB position to be a little bit more traditional if they want to be, or maybe they kind of like the exotic three, two, five, which really these days is not that exotic. It's kind of what a lot of people are doing just in different form, form or fashion. Um, so it'll be interesting. I, I think linebacker is definitely the position where you're looking if that position plays the way they can, that defense is going to get reach the potential that it could have. Cause I have a, they, I think they could be really, really good. It's interesting you bring up the like the three two six piece of it too, is because like they mentioned yeah, it last six. year that they had to do that out of not really out of necessity, but it kind of it, it kind of um it fit their team's personality. Like I think they used Iowa State as an example of where they got it from, and they didn't really make a big deal out of it. They just came out and played it a bunch against Louisville, and that became their thing. But what I'm yeah. curious is too when you talk about that, talk about how much are they going to keep, how much like traditional look where they have, or where they go to that three two six a lot. I think the key is dudes like J.J. Pagese and Taiwan Malone. Like, what do you get from a Malone in year two? Pagese, I didn't I, – I guess I didn't look in hard enough when the Ole Miss got him, like what he did at Auburn. I don't know how productive he was, but the Iron Bowl was on yes, uh, two days ago, and I had a – on my lunch break, I watched a decent bit of it. He played a ton of snaps in that Auburn defensive line. And I know they weren't necessarily like your typical good Auburn defensive line, but he just played a lot more than I remembered him. And so if you have guys like that behind like a KD Hill or Isaiah Eitan and you actually have real depth on that defensive line, I wonder if they try to get all of them out on the field more if they stick with that 3-2-6 look. Whereas last year they did a lot of the 3-2-6 because it didn't feel like they felt like they had a ton – a ton at the interior offensive line spots. They ended up being pretty damn good on the edge, but that interior was kind of weak. Got exposed a little bit against Alabama, but like, you know, if you've actually got real depth up there now, I feel like it, it you're not as limited in what you can do where I felt like maybe they were a little bit limited last year because of the personnel. No, I think you're exactly correct. I think they've got an excuse to, to put more guys on the field and trust them and have a better rotation with those guys instead of having to have, you know, Sam Williams and Cedric Johnson and like a like a rabbit look where you've got like five linebackers on the, or you got like one defensive lineman and four linebackers and uh you know seven DBs, which is what it looks like they had out there all the time, having one guy like three gap and then just figure it out. Um, because I mean they have a weird schedule and they have a, a lot of guys you have to play a lot of minutes coming down the end of the stretch. So I think figuring out who that rotation is gonna be, and that's what really the two positions linebacker I think there's not enough guys to be worried about the rotation you just got to figure out who could play but defensive line and DB I mean there's so many guys on this roster that I really think have a really good shot of playing a lot for this team and it's just kind of figuring out who's going to be playing more than the others who do you trust 
who understands the defense and uh, stuff like that. Because, I mean, they've got a lot of guys, a lot of depth. It's just figuring out who's who. We'll get back to Weldon Rodenberg in just a second, but want to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywright.substack.com. Just type in your email and you get a 16-ounce prime strip and a $5 pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. As we hit in the dog days of summer, prime grilling season, you're going to want to go into LB's and find your own favorites. Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. It is absolutely the best place in the world to get meat. I love the uh, tri-tips. You got the filet burgers, all kinds of delicious sausage, fresh seafood. Greg's got it all. And if he doesn't have it, he will get it for you because he wants to make your grilling experience great. Absolutely a staple of the Oxford community. Check them out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. We've heard a lot about um, Clowney, or we've talked about him a decent bit, I feel like, for a guy that hasn't played a ton. What was kind of your read on him as a prospect when you guys were recruiting him? You know, he feels like he's been around a while, but he's is, is really, I think, only a – I think he's a COVID sophomore maybe. Or I can't remember if he was a freshman last year, but still a young guy is my point. What's kind of your read on him? And it, would it shock you if he kind of made a jump and became an impact guy this year? I wouldn't be shocked by that. Uh, coming in, he was a guy who was committed to LSU for a long time. And uh, Ogeron did an Ogeron special and dropped him like a week before signing day. Uh, basically terminating LSU's relationship with St. Francis, from what I've been told, which is a pretty good high school program, uh, a very good high school program, actually. Um, so after that happened, uh, Partridge had a relationship with that high school, and uh, we kind of jumped on him pretty quickly after that. And he came in and was pretty shy. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big culture shock coming from, you know, Maryland to Mississippi. There's not a lot of Maryland kids on the team. I think he kind of struggled uh, getting adapted to college football and getting adapted to SEC and Ole Miss. Um, but then the next year, he put on a ton of weight. He looked a lot better. He was a lot more comfortable from everything I've heard. And I, I expect him to continue that trend. I, I've heard nothing but good things about what his progress has looked like. And that's a pretty deep position they have on the team. But I, I do remember seeing him last year. And he played a little bit, not not as much as you probably wanted to, but he looked really, really good, really, really in shape and looked like a guy who's more than capable of playing SEC snaps at that outside linebacker position. He's now listed at 6'4", 250, and that'll play from a weight and, like, a strength perspective if that's kind of on the up and up as well. Yeah, that'll play. Is he is he cousins with Jadavion? Is that what the connection was? Is it cousins or they're not brothers, right? I don't remember. I believe they are cousins. Okay, maybe you could get. And I mean, uh, I, I I think I think they are like legit cousins. You know, okay. like sometimes you know it, that's my cousin. Like no, I think they're like actually cousins. I forget he's from that. Like he went to high school in that Baltimore, Maryland area. That is like a culture shock, and you we always forget that with these kids. I talked to Tysheem Johnson for that uh, NIL story, and you know they came up during they recruited during COVID, and so he didn't get to go on an official visit. No. He got in the car with his coach and drove down to Oxford on his own just to see it before he came. He put it a lot of trust into Partridge. And was, I don't think he was hesitant about getting there, but it's just he didn't know a lot. And for him to get acclimated and be a freshman and have the impact he had, it's super impressive because, like, he told, he told me a story, and he didn't mean this in, like, a bad way, but, like, he basically was like, yeah, we were in line at, like, a Zaxby's in Alabama, and everyone was, like, real nice and, like, real talking to me. And I was kind of shocked. I was like, why are these – he's like, why are these strangers, like, being nice and talking to me? He's like, they don't do that in Philly. Like, you just kind of keep your head down and keep it moving. 
And he was like, yeah. I'd only heard bad things about the South, but in that Zach's beat, I thought this was the greatest place on earth. He was like, I was wondering why these people are just so high on life being nice. <laughs> it just shows you, like, it's, you forget their 18-year-old kids going out of their bubble for the first time ever. It's probably the biggest and most overlooked thing from a fan perspective when it comes to recruiting is how big of a deal it is to just like we think of football players as just football players and like, oh, this kid from California is going to Alabama and this kid from Philadelphia is going to Ole Miss. Like, you know, big time player. This should be awesome. But like they're actually, I mean, they're kids. And a lot of times it's, it was always my biggest pet peeve when I saw Ole Miss like dipping into the Northeast and, you know, Partridge's credit, he's gotten some really good players out of there. But you kind of see it all the time where like they come to the South and it's just it's just not for them. And, you know, whether it's the lifestyle, the culture, the type of football, the SEC, you know, it just doesn't always work out. And you see, I mean, I saw a guy from A&M that was from New York. He was like a five, like a five-star, four-star. He just transferred out after his freshman year. And it's like, why did he transfer out? He wanted to be closer to home. It's like, okay, then why are we going to New York and wasting all that time and money to get a kid who was here for six months, basically? Um, so, I mean, it happens all the time. And a lot of times – it happens like that where in one year they transfer out, but sometimes it happens like Clowney or Taishim where, you know, it takes some time to get adjusted, but they're mature enough and ready to understand like what their goals are and they figure it out and they contribute quickly. Um, but that's, it's a kind of a culture thing. You know, it's, it's, you have to have the right team culture, the coaches, the support staff prepared for kids like that because it's nothing for a kid from Jackson to go to Ole Miss. It's like, it's the same thing. Uh, well, it's not, but it, it's it's a lot closer. <laughs> but getting a kid from – but even a kid from Florida, even a kid from Texas, it's just very different. It's not home. It's it's very, very different from that. And it's not always, you know, just turnkey, plug and play. Sometimes it's a development process. Um, that's why you see schools like Ole Miss and Mississippi State, and even like Auburn, like they recruit kids from the area that can come in and understand the culture They've been around it. They've grown up with it. It's not something new for them, and you can get them in quicker. They can adjust quicker, whereas some programs don't do that. It's just a it's a give and take, but it's something people forget that these guys aren't numbers, and there's just no guarantee they come and are just automatically adjusted to life in Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah, you're right, and like then in some ways that's I, I was talking to someone about this one time at a practice. I can't remember what it was, but like in some ways that's a little bit. Uh, like if a kid comes from out of state and like he's not adjusting well and like if you hear of a kid's homesick, I feel like that's almost more of like incurable from like a coaching staff standpoint. Like, you know what I mean? If a kid's grades are down or he needs to pick up weight, like those are like tangible things you can fix. But if a kid just doesn't feel like he's fitting in well and homesick, like what, what do you do? It's, it's not like a puppy. You don't put like a warm bottle under its blanket. And it's all good to go. Like it's kind of hard to, to fix something like that. So, so, and so like it's, it, it can be tough. I, uh, I remember th there was a kid a couple years ago that that happened with. And like, after a while, they just were like, we don't know what we can do. Like the kid needs to go transfer somewhere else. He's not just not adjusting well. And like that part of it, I just imagine would be frustrating because you get in there and if he does, if it doesn't work, it seems like it doesn't work. Like there's not a whole lot you can do to accommodate that. Can you? No, I mean, you can try to, whether it's room or have them live with kids from a similar area that kind of like understand what they've had to go through to get adjusted to, to wherever college you're at. Um, sometimes they have a, a good connection with a certain support staff member or academic tutor or somebody, and you just have those people stay around them. And 
help them with things. Um, and then that's, it can change. I mean, you can be like, okay, you know, I kind of like this. I'm feeling more comfortable. I'm getting more used to it. Sometimes it just doesn't change. And it's like, you know, this just wasn't the place for me. And it's not always playing time. It's not always football related. Why some kids want to leave, especially the transfer portal. You just assume these kids are like, oh, he's not starting. So he wants to leave. It's like, no, sometimes he just made the wrong decision, whether He's going from, you know, Georgia to Texas A&M because he got paid a lot of money. It's like, actually, this sucks. Uh, I want to go back to, like, Georgia Tech or something closer to home um, or vice versa. A kid from Texas goes to, you know, South Carolina. It's like, hey, like, I'm living with three guys from, you know, Rock Hill, and we have, like, nothing in common, and I hate this. <laughs> like, I'd rather go hang out with my guys from outside of Dallas, you know, at, you know, TCU or something, and something closer to home where I, I can see my family. It happens all the time. Yeah, it's, not, really, it's not unusual. They're really busy, too. Like, it's not like you and I, we were up going through Rush, and, like, you know, I, like you're meeting folks and going out and stuff like that. Like, their college – their introduction to college is a hell of a lot different because of the way football is just seated on the academic calendar. Like, particularly if you're not an early enrollee, you show up for the summer, you go up for fall camp, and it's like, boom, like they're into it. So it's a hard adjustment, too, whereas, like, I wouldn't describe what I had to do my first semester in college as hard by any stretch uh, of the no. imagination. Just, <laughs> no, it was not hard. <laughs> there's just a little bit different on, uh, on that end. And so that's always an interesting aspect that I don't feel like people think about as much. So camp-wise, let's get to the topic that I've imagined a lot of people, you know, that's going to be the main discussion, the quarterback competition. It's going to be an interesting one. I think it proved during uh, – during spring that it's going to be a real competition or is a real competition, I should say. From your vantage point, I don't remember if they had one when you were around at Ole Miss, but just your dealings in football. Fall camp is like a truncated time period. I know you can scrimmage. I know you can do various things, but it's not like a real game. And so what are like the nuances of how a quarterback competition actually goes in a fall camp? Like what does that actually look like? How much is charted? How are they actually deciding on a day-by-day and practice-by-practice basis? Uh, I mean, they, they're charting everything. Now, are they charting everything because there's a quarterback competition? No. They chart everything because they chart everything. That's just how practice works. Um, how do you judge a quarterback competition? I mean, th- there's different ways to look at it. It's, uh, you know, what guy is making the best decision is always, like, number one. Whether it's the best player, the most flashy, you know, is, is the guy understanding the offense? Is he running it smoothly? Uh, is he making the correct throws, the correct decisions, the correct reads uh, in every aspect of practice, whether it's seven on seven, whether it's team, whether it's just air, receivers on air. You know, there's just so many different ways that you kind of have these guys go through practice. And it's a day-by-day thing. You know, some guys have good days. Some guys have bad days. It's not always this <coughs> – excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. Ugh. You good? wrong pipe my bad no you're good (coughs) yeah water went down the wrong pipe uh you can cut that out right (laughs) yeah yeah, we can definitely cut that out we uh, we won't we'll but uh, that wasn't attractive all right what were we talking about quarterbacks Uh, just like how a quarterback competition goes and kind of how everything's evaluated yeah um all right back on to it um so they, they go through all different kinds of things and uh, another thing is they, they're in the film room and they're going through the film and they're learning the offense and they have to look at that as well. It's not all on the field. You know, if you are on the whiteboard and you can't write, you know, what the coverage is and what the routes are, it's like, 
how the hell am I supposed to play you in the games? Um, and then the two most important things, and you know it pretty quickly, um, who does the team believe in? I think that is something that's incredibly underrated. And who is, you know, who has the most upside, who has the most talent? You can go through everything, but if the team doesn't believe in the guy and the guy doesn't prove that he has the most upside, the most talent, the most, the best ability for you to win football games, you're not going to be the starting quarterback. So those two are like the simplest ways to look at this competition. And I think, you know, there are varying degrees of this. Um, We'll put it like, I'm trying to put this nicely, South Carolina's quarterback situation, they had a competition, but they were in a little bit of trouble no matter which way they went. Now, granted, they had a much better year than I think most people anticipated, so maybe that's not totally fair. Where it feels like these, they have two good options here. They have two talented kids that both have a good shot of panning out and becoming productive players. We're like, this is a way vast blast from the past, but like 2004 after Eli graduated, uh, Ole Miss used three quarterbacks throughout most of the year, Robert Lane, Ethan Flad, and Michael Spurlock. And, you know, I don't remember Spurlock. what they were. <laughs> I think it became pretty clear pretty quickly that, like, hey, none of these guys are the answer, so we're just having to shuffle through all of them, which is a tough place to be. Whereas, like, I feel like Ole Miss this time around, like, they have two really talented kids and two really talented options, which, you know, is a lot more than some places can say. I, You know, Auburn's going Zach Calzada or T.J. Finley. Like, I, which two would you rather have? I'd rather be in Ole Miss's position. Yeah, absolutely. Let's say that. It's, it's, it's a competition. It's going to be tough to replace for Colorado, but at least they have good options, which is a credit to the, to the coaching staff, of course. We talked about this a couple of times, just Lucy doing the quarterback competition throughout spring. We're both in agreement, right, that we think this goes into the year. With the way the schedule sets up, they don't necessarily have to make a decision game one, right? Like, you can play both guys against UCF, and you probably want to have a guy in place week three against Georgia Tech, but you get Troy and uh, – did I say UCF? I meant Central Arkansas. Yeah, um, yeah sorry, no, not UCF, Central Arkansas and Troy. Like, they have time, eight quarters, to kind of play around with it um, before they probably want to have a guy. But do you think it goes into the year? Yeah, it, it sure be nice if it didn't. I, mean, I, I think if, you, if you're the team, you're the coaching staff, you definitely don't want that. You want one guy to kind of put himself above the other. You want the team to kind of choose and, and see who they're following. You just You want someone to be able to be the guy instead of having to go through it and playing a, a, a Troy team and like having what, you know, series by series or whoever's hot, whoever's not. I, I just, I hate two quarterback systems. And I just, I don't see, cause they're not, they're not different styles of players necessarily. Right. So it's not like one guy is, uh, you know, Lamar Jackson, the other guy's Tom Brady. <laughs> they're, they're similar um, from a lot of the ways they play the game. So I, I think they're going to try to find somebody and if they are comfortable enough to have that guy be named the starter and the dude, I, they'll definitely do it. If they're not, then, yeah, they'll go into the season and let them play out real time, trial by fire to see who ends up on top. Uh, but if I'm a fan or if I'm a coaching staff, you want somebody to, to take it and figure it out before the game starts. It's a good point, and, and luckily the schedule sets up better for them this year to where if they had done, you know, the Louisville game in Atlanta last year, I don't know if it had necessarily turned out differently, but, like, having a real formidable opponent that week one to where, one, you really need a guy to kind of do exactly what you just said, and it has to kind of has, has to answer the bell immediately. Um, right. It is it is work out well for them, the fact that they can kind of have a couple of tune-ups. I, I don't think the Central Arkansas Bears will have the firepower 
to beat Ole Miss, even if they have two quarterbacks going and it's not going great <laughs> over there. So there is a little bit of uh, a little bit of a uh, grace period, which I think will certainly be helpful. And hell, the schedule really does shape up okay until you get to the West piece of it, right? It's six games. That Kentucky game, I think, will be tough. I think Kentucky, they, yeah, I can't overlook those guys. I think they're going to be really good. I think so too. I think Ole Miss is very fortunate that that game is in Oxford. That would be like that would be a really really tough place to go on the road as kind of your first really hostile environment with respect to, you know, Bobby Dodd Stadium there in Atlanta. I don't think Georgia Tech is going to be particularly good, but like that you can't no, overlook they're Kentucky. They're suck. Yeah. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> let's not let's not say it lightly. That that's a yeah. bad football team. It, that's going to be a bad football like it's team. going well for our guy Jeff Collins. Uh No, it's not. Here. Um, and so that, like that, that'll help out as well. Um, it's gun to your head. Who do you think wins it? Dart. Gun to my head. I think it's dark. I'll Zach. I, I just, I, you go Almar. Yes. Only from the perspective of, I kind of agreed with your line of thinking about like why they brought him in here. Like, I think they brought him in here to be the guy, but with the way this team is set up, I've just kind of more and more thought about the fact that, you talk about making the right decision. They, Dart struggled to do that a little bit in spring, and Altmar was definitely more in command. Now, they were not on even footing, right? You got Dart coming in, transferring across the country, doesn't know the playbook and all of that, to where Luke Altmar kind of been steady. Eddie had some game experience, definitely knows the offense. So that could definitely change, and there's probably been some ground made up there. But I just, at the end of the day, I think they might go with the, the steady hand and a guy that's not going to kind of put them in bad spots. Like, they don't necessarily need – as much ad-libbing as they got from Corral at times last year. you At least on paper, you would certainly hope not. But I think talent-wise, I do give the edge to Dart, and that's what makes this more fascinating. Honestly, I just zagged for the sake of podcast content. I really <laughs> have no vibe on this at all. Um, I guess I kind of lean Dart, uh, you know, because he was the big flashy guy they brought in, like we just discussed. But, like, you know, with the way Altmar performed in spring, that really made me, like, have a, less of a feel of how it's going to go. It's kind of a coin flip. Yeah, I've just – I've seen so many spring practices and scrimmages where, like, the offense just doesn't look right, right under Kiffin and under, you know, anybody. And then you get to game time and it's just fine, especially with Kiffin in, like, 2020 and 21. I mean, some of those scrimmages were just ugly. And that was with, like, a healthy Mingo and Sanders and Matt Corral. It just didn't look good. And all of a sudden you get to game time and it's like against Florida, you've scored three touchdowns in the first, you know, 25 minutes of the game. Uh, I feel like they're going to figure this offense out. I think they're going to have the best running game that uh, they've had in a long time. And if you've got a guy like Dart who can really stretch the field, um, it, it just depends on if he can get it and understand it and keep the football away from, you know, the defense, um, which is a really bad way of saying that. Um, but if he's not the guy – it doesn't matter if they went through all that effort and time of getting him from USC to Ole Miss because if, if they if Altmeyer ends up being the guy, the guy they trust, the guy who's better for this offense and this team, he's going to play. I mean, they're never going to play a guy just because they went out to get him, even though I do think he's going to end up being the guy. They're going to play the guy who gives them the best chance to win games. Uh, and fall is definitely going to show which one's which. I do think it'll be Dart at the end, though. You pointed out to me last year that about Altmaier being like a like a tough kid that played behind a bad offensive line, and I yes. talked a little bit this summer. He's really even keeled too. He's very steady, Eddie. I, I, for a guy that like his personality, even just talking to him for like an hour, 
I can see how why or I can see why he handled the dart thing so well. He really just seems like a genuine tough kid. He just was like, like he had a very striking quote to me. He said something to the effect of like, I just like being an SEC quarterback. I don't ever dread going to the building. I enjoy waking up early. I enjoy doing the drills. This is like a really, really fun job for me. And I love the competition. Um, and yeah. like that kind of even keel person, you know, everyone's going to say that in a press conference, but it was just me and him on a zoom, just kind of, like, I think he knew the purpose of the story. I think he knew I wasn't going to like burn him with anything, but it, my point is it felt very genuine. Like he, he, you couldn't get him riled up about much. Hell, I had trouble making him laugh. And maybe that's just, I'm not funny. And like, the books <laughs> were terrible, but like he was polite, very serious, but it was just steady Eddie the entire time. And I feel like, uh, That'll help him a lot. And I guess also if you've gotten thrown in at Tennessee and against that defensive line against Baylor, not a ton is going to scare you, even though it's a limited sample. No, yeah. That was really – He he was one of my favorite recruits ever. Um, Every time he came to the building, he was just excited to be there. Uh, He was just – he's so polite, which is, I guess, not always the biggest positive. You kind of – you need a little asshole and need to be a really good player. But he was just – he's just easy to deal with. He, he is so consistent. You saw it on film. You saw it with his personality. You saw it with how he treated other people. I'm sure his offensive line and teammates love him. And it, according to, you know, anything I see on social media with them, they love Dark too. I, that's the kind of the interesting thing is, like, it doesn't seem like there's really any animosity with these two. I think they're just trying to figure out who's going to be the best. I'm a huge fan of Luke. Uh, I think he's got the right mindset to be the guy if he ends up being it. Uh He's just going to have to prove it. I think he's going to have to prove it even more than Dart because even though we've seen Luke play, yeah, there were some flashes in there, but it wasn't all super pretty, um, which is not his fault, but it's impossible to get it out of your head knowing it was there. I mean, he did play three quarters of a game, and it wasn't electric by any means, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't like, okay, this kid will never play for this team. It was just he's going to have to, like – I think because you, the lack of dart in game time under this coaching staff, you might, Luke might have to prove just a little bit more. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like uh, it was an admirable effort. That makes any sense. Yeah. Sorry. I lost you right. there for half a second. No, you're exactly right. It was an admirable effort. Sorry. We lagged there on the, uh, this damn, this crappy Wi-Fi we're on, but uh, we're powering through anyway. Uh, but no, you're, you're right. Yeah. Like it was an admirable effort, right? But it wasn't. There wasn't anything where anyone, like Ole Miss fans, left that stadium and being like, "Okay, we're in great hands next year." That was like you said, electric. That was awesome, and not that's not fair to Altmaier. But it's not. It's there not. Have but it's just reality. Where, yeah. Yeah, there have been cases where dudes have come off the bench and just lit it up immediately. And you're like, "Oh my god!" Like, what is that? And then you know, some of it doesn't last. Remember old Kenny Trill? That was a nice quarter and a half he had against South Carolina that night. He got a nickname out of it. He was right after Manziel. That didn't really stick, but. I think you're right. Oh, yeah, like DJ, DJ Ungiogalele or whatever his name is from Clemson, like lit up North, oh, Notre Dame. Then last year he couldn't throw a pass over 10 yards. I mean, it happens all the time the opposite way too. Yeah, no, you're absolutely. Um, and the Dart side of it, Dart, he's a very smart kid. Um, his, I haven't ever talked to him directly. I talked to his trainer right after he uh, decided he was – he and Trigg decided they were coming to Ole Miss. And a lot of times with transfers, they transferred from their other place for a reason. Things didn't work out. And not every transfer is a problem child by any means, but there's usually a reason there. But with Dart, it's a unique one. He He's had a whale of – you know he turned 18 like in May – or 19 in May. Very young. Very, very, very young. 19, excuse me. 18 would be wild. But in that time period, he – got recruited late to a USC, shows up to USC, gets thrown in the fire before I think he ever thought he would play, 
plays pretty well, hurts his knee. The coaching staff that recruits him gets fired. They bring in a new staff. He comes back and plays kind of hurt on that meniscus. And then the staff gets fired. He, the yeah. new staff that comes in brings in probably the only quarterback in the country that would have unseated him at, at USC. And then he's forced to kind of, you know, look, I mean, he's a D1 SEC quarterback. Like his life's not terrible, but moving across the country and kind of restarting really to no, to no fault of your own. It wasn't that he didn't work out and that he wasn't good. It was just the kind of the, the business that is college football and he got swallowed up by it. I, you know, he had a, I think one of the reasons they announced a little bit later is he wanted to kind of tell his teammates goodbye. And I think that was a pretty emotional meeting because he made friends out there. He's not a Southern California kid. He's from Utah. No, I think he settled in nicely and made friends out there and that was tough. And so, you know, a lot of times when a guy transfers from another school, particularly quarterback, it's either one, they wanted to play and it didn't work out and they didn't win their job at the previous place. Whereas this one's a little bit more unique. And I think you're right in that um, Altmyer will probably have to prove it more. I'm just curious on the uh, dark side of it. Like, can he adjust? And two, can he kind of hone in? Like, people seem to be tantalized by his ability to ad-lib and the arm strength and some of the mobility when he's healthy. Supposedly, he didn't show that last year because of the knee thing. But can he rein that in? Like, I don't think they can ha- they can stomach having 2020 gunslinger-type Matt Corral on this team. No. I think get Lane Kiffin cannot handle that again. <laughs> you can do 2021 good parts of Matt Corral. So, that, that's – I don't know. It's going to be a fascinating dynamic. I think it'll be a good race, and Ole Miss is uh, certainly in good hands there. As – I asked a broker this, just from your experience dealing with fall camps, at what point do people get sick of it? At what point does the proverbial, I want to hit someone else, get in? Is that a weekend? Is that two weeks in? At what point does camp kind of be like, okay, let's, let's, let's get this game, game day rolling? It's probably, probably like two weeks in is when you start feeling it from the players. You've probably had your first like fight or two between the team, which is always fine. Like It's no big deal. And media will make it a big deal or you know something like that will happen. It's not a big deal. And then – Kind of once everyone gets their position settled, you know, who's who, by the time it's like two, two and a half weeks in, everyone kind of knows where they're at and you're still just practicing and practicing and practicing. That's when you begin to sense that these guys are ready to hit someone else. And the coaches are too. I mean, by that point, it's a lot of practice. It's a lot of time together. It's a lot of install. It's a lot of everything. And uh, you can tell that that week of game time, you start doing a little bit less practicing, a little bit more, you know, game time situations and kind of getting things riled up slowly but surely before the before that first Saturday. You, you can feel it amongst the entire building. Like, okay, let's let's kind of get this thing started. Yeah, absolutely. And that made me think of it. I don't know, something you said in there made me think of it. One thing I glossed over, what uh another fascinating thing this is Charlie Weiss Jr. Like how much of the training wheels are being taken off. You you were you outlined really well, like the autonomy that Jeff Lebby had as the play caller in the offense. And I know Kiffin certainly had some influence. I get it. Of course. A, a younger guy that doesn't have as much experience as Levy, like, I kind of curious what that looks like. Will he actually call plays? I've, I figured Kiffin probably doesn't want to call plays, but does he have the same freedom that, you know, uh, Jeff Lebby did? Like, I'm curious about the, I guess trust might be the right way to put it, but I'm just curious to see kind of how loose Charlie Weiss Jr. has turned and what that looks like. My my understanding when they were F, at FAU is that Charlie called plays there um, for the second year they were together. My my guess and understanding is that Charlie will call plays here as well. And it'll be similar. Lane will have his his hands on a lot of the game plans week by week, and he'll have the play sheet in front of him when he's out there, and he will be, you know, probably getting a few of his in there depending on, you know, time and situation. But it'll be Charlie's. 
Uh, I, I think I'm pretty damn confident in that. I mean, Charlie called plays for two years at, at South Florida, and no, there's their results were not good from really any standpoint. I, I'm really not going to put a lot of that on Charlie. Uh, that's a a program that's dying more and more every single day. Um, just really lacking for talent. And he was a 27-year-old offensive coordinator. They don't just give those jobs away at places in Florida. You know, they just it just doesn't happen. I don't I don't care how young he is. Uh, he's incredibly talented. He's trusted by a lot of people, not just Lane. Uh, Jeff Scott was pretty good at his job at Clemson, so I think he's got a pretty good idea of who's capable of calling offensive plays. Um, all that to say, I would imagine it's Charlie's offense. Or a, a combination of Charlie and Lane's offense with Charlie calling the plays. And they do, like you mentioned, have a previous history. What I, I tell you what I'm going to get sick of is, particularly if they have success, them the TV broadcast and everyone bringing up that he's 27 years old because I also am 27. And while I'm proud of what we're talking about, the soccer corner. I think he's 28 life, now. It's going to make me feel <laughs> terribly about myself. This guy's an SEC offensive coordinator with quite the paycheck and – what do I have to show for 27 years of life? I mean, the dude's just making us all look bad. Pretty decent looking fellow. Yeah. That's going to be a real tough pill to swallow. Um, there might be some animosity that's uh, definitely jealousy. So that's uh, that's going to be a tough one if they have some success because I'm going to be like, wow, I am on the couch about to do a podcast. <laughs> I have not showered today, and this dude's just out here crushing it. So um, that's another thing to look out for. That's uh, We kind of hit the major storylines in camp. I mean, I'm sure, obviously, you know, we'll hop back on in a couple weeks. Um, after some sound bites and some press conference and stuff, and you know, we'll kind of get the general storylines. But you know, I, there's not a ton to discuss as far as like camp, right? It is what it is. We see some pieces. I say we. I used to see some pieces of practice, but guess like everyone, the practice viewing thing always cracked me up because the way like Luke structured it and Freeze did before, we saw them stretch, we saw them kick field goals, and then they were. You like, don't oh. see shit. Yeah, no, I don't expect them to show us stuff, but like the practice view. I used to see you at practice every day. You watched nothing of them. Yeah, we, we ended up talking about just random stuff, and I'd be like, "Is it period eight yet? Like, I'm ready to get out of the sun." <laughs> we don't see anything, and that's yeah. So I'm just interested to see how much of a beat we'll actually have on the progress that's coming with the newcomers in the quarterback situation, just from a limited sample size of. Uh, you know, media availability and, you know, to practice viewing. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that. So we'll kind of get that as it goes. It is uh, now time for the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. Um, it is preseason for them, but not for long. I uh, asked you right before we started recording, I saw games and I asked you if those counted to which you said, no, they start counting next weekend. What's uh so we're getting close to the season. What's a, what's a like a tune up or a preseason game for soccer look like like can you play soccer at half speed are you playing dudes you're not playing like what are what are these epl clubs getting out of the preseason i find that fascinating well it's kind of unique in the way that these guys have so many players um, that come back into the team from their loan teams so you know united will have kids on loan all over you know in the second division or in spain or in italy and then for the preseason and for training, they all come back to Man United. They all come back to Man City. All come back to Chelsea. And these five, six, seven preseason games are a lot of rotations between young kids and veterans that are playing and getting time and getting, you know, Premier League match fit. Um, so a lot of these games are kind of exciting. It's kind of like the NFL. You get to see some of the rookies play, some of the free agents play, guys you, you kind of know about but you haven't seen a lot of yet. Um, kind of come back to the squad, try to earn their place in the, you know, 23-man real roster instead of getting 
shipped out or sold or loaned out. Um, so you can get a lot out of this this time period. It, it's a pretty important for a lot of these teams to be fit and ready. And, you know, new signings are coming in and guys are going out. So it's a lot of uh, ebb and flow and flux to it. But it's, it's, it's really – it's important. Do the the vet like can you do the vets kind of sit it out if they want to like Aaron Rodgers probably won't play in the preseason is it kind of like that or is everybody kind of get in the mix and play I know you get the younger guys with the rotation all that but like do the vets need to play from like a obviously they're not proving anything but like the the 30, 30 million euro guy that they're paying in you know the midfield or whatever the case may be does that guy need to be out there or he, can he kind of coast it. Um, they definitely play a lot less. Okay. Um, they might get in a few. It's similar to you know, the NFL preseason. They play the first game or two and then, like, not play the rest. That's kind of the same with a lot of guys. Like, Ronaldo didn't play a single game until this morning, and they've had, like, eight. <laughs> um, now his was a little different because there was some some transfer drama there. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the big money guys and the veterans, they'll probably play one or two of the five games, or maybe they'll play a half here and there to get you know, their legs back under them. Um, but it, it's similar to the NFL, similar to NBA and everything. It, it's a lot of the younger guys and guys kind of trying to make the team that are playing the majority of the minutes. The I guess I buried the lead there. The last time we did a podcast, you were headed to watch uh, Man City again. So this one confused me. It was Club America, but they're located in Mexico City. Like, do, do I don't know, do we have a Club Mexico City in Washington, D.C.? I don't really get that one. That one threw me for a loop. How was that game? How was the experience despite getting uh, stiffed by Man City on free tickets or any sort of communication? So, yeah, the Man City they, people they didn't. Not listening. <laughs> they, they did not call us for our input or our media badge to go to the game. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It, it's very, it's a very different atmosphere compared to a competitive game. You know, we went to um, Mexico versus Canada in the Gold Cup last year, and, you know, entire NRG is filled with with Mexican soccer fans, and it's exciting. It's a semifinal. It, it's just a completely different vibe, whereas in this game, you know, it's kind of – it's a preseason game. You know, you're, they're trying to play, but it's really not the same. Uh, it's really a lot of – the ability to be able to see some of these guys, like, showcase just how good they are. And, you know, my friends were – we all had a group of five, and they don't watch as much soccer as I do, but they, they like to go to the games in person because they're a ton of fun. And all four of them were like, the same things. Like, these guys are a lot better <laughs> than the national team. Like, this is a completely different level of, of, of soccer, and these guys have known each other for, for years. They practice every day together. I mean, the, the way that they move, the way that they know each other, it, it's just a completely different game but also not as exciting because it wasn't an actual competitive match, but it was fun. And this is part of the preseason. I'm curious. So that it, that's cool that you got to go and that's cool that they kind of take these tours and I get part of its branding, but like, I imagine if the Tampa Bay Bucks played a preseason game in Germany, Tom Brady and whoever would race holy hell. Like, that's not really a relaxing type of deal, right? Or just are footballers used to traveling globally so it doesn't matter as much? I just wonder going across the pond for preseason seems like it's putting a strain on some guys. Well, I think it's just the uniqueness of the sport where, like, football, you know, it's – I mean, there's no – you don't have to bring all of the equipment and all of the, the crap. And, right. you know, these guys are kind of traveling and playing four or five games because it's, it's soccer. You, you do your two-hour game and you're done. Um, so they're traveling around the country. I think the city played uh, Bayern Munich at Lambeau, and then they played a game in Las Vegas, and they came to Houston. It's just not – it's not as difficult – um, it's a lot of travel, sure. But these guys are used to that. 
Um, so it's, it's not as big of a hassle. I mean, the NFL used to play games over overseas in preseason. Um, a former coach of mine who unfortunately passed away recently um, actually was fluent in Japan in the 49ers in, I think, 2002, played a preseason game in Tokyo, Japan. I forgot he that used to happen. Yeah, he was the team uh, translator for everybody. That's so, like, I mean, they, they've done it before. Obviously, they don't do it as much anymore. I mean, I don't think they ever do it because they already hate the preseason in the beginning, much less having to fly 17 hours over to Tokyo or wherever the hell you'd rather be. So, uh, no, I mean, it, it's not that difficult. And, like, they're not just going to the U.S. I mean, they go to Australia. They go to Thailand. They go to, you know, all over the place um, because it's, it's marketing. That's, that's the most important thing, especially in the U.S., which is growing you know, a lot of the bigger teams will come to the U.S. because, I mean, they fill the stadiums every single time they play, and it's just more marketing for players for the future and just, you know, merchandising and whatnot. Let's dive into this Club de America in Mexico deal. What, what, what's their story? So there, I watched part of this game partly because I saw it flipped on. I knew you were there, and I was like, oh, I'll throw on a piece of this. I may even actually caught it on a replay. I can't remember. But, like, they're a pretty big club. Um, they've had some some success against EPL clubs. I know they're friendlies or whatever preseason games, and they probably don't count. But they they seem to be somewhat nationally relevant. What what is the deal in this club? Are they they're playing in the Mexican Tier One league? Is that a good league? What's this team's story? Yeah, they they play in Liga MX, and I'm not going to sit here and lie to you to act like I know a whole lot about these teams because um, I don't. Uh, but yeah, Liga MX is it's a real league. It's a big league. It's it's MLS esque in terms of size. Uh, probably a much larger following. It's a much older league with teams who are a lot more established uh, compared to a lot of these newer U.S. teams that are trying to, you know, figure it all out. Uh, but they, they were fun. There's, I mean, there was a ridiculous amount of fans there. And, I mean, I think they're in Mexico City, so there's obviously a, a crossover in Houston with the, with the amount of Mexican population here and uh, Hispanic population. Uh, it was they were exciting. They were fun. They were pretty good. They had a lot of chances, and they played really, really well against a lot of these EPL teams in the preseason. Uh, they held their own, but I, I, do I know much about them? No, I don't. Know, I don't know shit about them. <laughs> yeah, I just I was curious that the, the American that the American thing has to be a branding, like a real branding. Like I, I, I wonder how that works. It's just like we're Club America. Wikipedia told me that sometimes they just go by America. That would just be bizarre if we had a team in the NFC West that was just like we're Japan. Like, I, I don't understand that one as much. Like, it's, that one threw me for a loop, and then I started going down in the league. Uh, so, I guess it, it seems like a real league. You mentioned kind of older MLS-esque. I just wonder if they have any, like, cool tournaments, like a Tecate Cup or something awesome like that. Looks like they got some CONCACAF action. I don't really know what that means. But uh, I was impressed what I saw from Club America. We might have to uh, buy a shirt. I might have to dive into the Mexican soccer this year. But for now, we'll stick pretty with good. The, you know, yeah. I so you mentioned that it is Man City's league to lose. I imagine you probably still feel that way. But is there anything else we should be on the lookout for before we get on the pitch and games that count next weekend? I mean, it, this is a league that is pretty much dominated by the top six at at all times. I don't expect that to be any different this year. Um, I think the biggest things to look for is it's Liverpool and Man City are the two best teams, and it's not particularly close. Okay. Uh, I think that it's going to be a race between those two to win it. Um, I just don't see anybody else putting up a real fight. Uh, Chelsea is a worse team than they were last year. They've lost guys. They're going to continue to lose a few guys. They went through that the ownership movement, and it's kind of been a rough patch so far. They've uh, 
been in on some transfers who have spurned them, kind of like in recruiting, uh, to go to different places. I, I don't think they're improved, um, but they're still really well coached and still are talented, but I just don't think they're the same. Um, the most improved team, which will be good for some people to, to hear, is, is Tottenham by far. Okay. They, they've signed seven or eight, like, really impact, really good players. Uh, they, they're deeper. They're more athletic. They've got uh, a better defense they had last year. They were, they were awful on defense. They were an automatic overbet every time you played them uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, I think they're going to be a team that's going to be probably competing for the Champions League spot, and I think they're going to get it. Uh, I think the fourth spot will be up for grabs between Arsenal, Chelsea, and, uh, and United, because I, I think Tottenham is probably the third best team in the league this year. Is there any shot that Saudi Castle sniffs a uh, sniffs a Champions League berth? If it's not this year, I think next year could be the year. Okay. Yes, I mean they're coming. They're like they're like live golf. That they're coming. They're, they're not here. Going away. I was about to say, what's all they're this? Not going, going away. I need to hear them at the mix at the top of the uh, at the top of the league. Yeah, I mean they're they're not getting relegated. They're going to be a good team. They're going to be a. Uh, you'll see them in the top ten. I would say probably majority of the year. Um, they're much better than last year. I mean, you saw we, we were talking about what happened in the second half of the season once they bought some dudes. Uh, and they've continued to buy some pretty good players. No, like, big names that if you don't follow the sport, you would know. But some players that are, that are really talented. Uh, they, I mean, they're going to be in it. They're going to be a pain in the ass to play. Uh, I don't anticipate them getting top four. Now, could they slide into that fifth or sixth spot and play – European football, Europa League, that's definitely possible. That they'll be in the mix for that. What's I up think. With, what's least. up with your guys? Is it still a train wreck or are we on the up and up? Have things been you were pretty down on them at the end of last year? Is it still a disaster or, or is United kind of trending up and gotten some things cleaned up? Um, it's still kind of a train wreck. Um, we've signed a few players that are not overly exciting. Um, are you getting good players? Now? Are you getting spurned by by top players? So we're in this issue where we're trying to sign a player, a Dutch player named Frankie De Jong, who right. plays for Barcelona. And I think we talked a little bit about this last time, where Barcelona is like in like financial ruin, yet they're continuing to buy players for eighty and a hundred million dollars. Well, they're they're still doing the same thing. <laughs> Nothing has changed in the last, you know, two, three weeks since we've talked. And now they're at a situation where they're trying to buy a player from Manchester City for $95 million. That's just the transfer fee. That's not paying him his contract. $95 million just to get him on your team. Um, and in order to do that, they have to sell De Jong. Well, he doesn't want to be sold. But if he wants to stay at Barcelona, he has to take a $25 million pay cut. So he's like, well, I'm not doing that either. It's a complete shit show. Um, so they, if he doesn't leave, then they can't register three of their new signings, which is one that is Robert Lewandowski, who might be the best striker in the world. So he could not play for Barcelona if they can't figure out their payroll and their pay structure, along with two other guys who are Rafina and another guy who are really good. And United is caught up in it because we want him but we're kind of like not focused on anyone else until we get him. And it's like, if it doesn't work out and they just you know, are able to do this shit without any consequences, then we're going to be like completely left in the cold. What a shame for such a proud organization. They, uh, 
the last thing I got for you, the new, the new clubs coming in, some awesome names, some awesome logos or shields, whatever they call them, as they have every, every year. Do you know anything about these? I think it's Bournemouth. We've got Fortest City, and I believe, like, is it Fulham maybe was the other one? Like, yeah, so they, Fulham. Fulham. What's the deal? Is anyone worth a damn? Is there anything to watch for? Because that's how I got it with Brentford, right? They got up. They're run by some uh, handicappers, basically. Like, <laughs> yeah. This year, these teams stink. No, Brent, Brentford's going to stay up too. I think they're they're still gaining on it. They're they're going to be good this year, or they're going to be a contender to stay. Uh, I know nothing about Bournemouth. I know who they are. I, I I know who's played for them. The other two are pretty interesting. Fulham is a club in London. They're one of the smaller clubs. They've they've been up and down, up and down. That's where Clint Dempsey used to play, um, the American striker from a while back. Uh, and then Anthony Robinson, who's a U.S. player, plays for them. Uh, they dominated the championship last year. I think they're going to be pretty good. They've signed some pretty unique players that I've kind of like seen or heard of um, for them. And Nottingham Forest, I believe, has an American owner. Hell yeah. Uh, and they're, they're one of the older clubs. They haven't been in the EPL in a while, and they've signed some pretty, like, known players. Jesse Lingard from United is going there and a few other guys – uh, I would say compared to last year where it was Norwich and Burnley and I cannot remember who else got relegated last year, but like those teams were not good. These three teams are going to be like really, really tough. They're, they're going to be difficult outs. They play with like real fans and pretty crazy atmospheres, especially Forest. Um, so they're going to really give some teams some trouble. They're uh, going to be contenders to stay. It'll be interesting to see who goes down because this is a pretty loaded uh, top half this year it's going to be a great year I can't wait to get back out on the pitch I've been waiting for this all summer and finally <laughs> the wait will be over next Friday it appears with a uh, full slate on Saturday he is Weldon Rodenberg resident soccer expert former Ole Miss recruiting staffer Rippy Wright's podcast correspondent I appreciate it my man we'll check in in a week or two yeah sounds good man see you all right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, thank you very much for making us a part of your day. Good to have Weldon back in the fold. As football season creeps up, I'm looking forward to getting back in the swing of things and doing the old uh, Sunday afternoon show with Weldon. We'll have a Nick Broker show out at some point this week and a couple more pods for you as uh, we kind of get the, uh, the gears rolling towards football season. Y'all have a great start to your week. <laughs>